the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And... Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Sake on Air, the world's first podcast dedicated to expanding the dialogue surrounding Japan's iconic beverages, sake, shochu, and of course, awamori. Recorded at the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center, well, normally recorded at the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in the heart of Tokyo.、Um, we're actually recording this remotely for this episode.、Um, and Sake on Air is made possible with the support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. We really wouldn't be able to do this without them.、Uh, my name is Chris Hughes, and I'm joined today by two of your regular hosts here on the show. Uh, guys, would you like to introduce yourself? I have. Justin? You have. You Justin? Have, you have, <laughs> yes. <laughs> We have Justin yes.、Uh, Potts and I have、uh, Rebecca Wilson Lai. Would you like to、uh, just introduce yourselves? Justin, off you go. Yeah, off I go. Yeah. How are you、uh, doing? I am, I'm, I'm hanging in there. It's a, it's a lovely weekend、uh, in, in, the, uh, in the Kanto region. And so. Yeah, no, things are good. I'm, I'm super excited for this week's show because it is one that we get more questions and inquiries about this week's topic than just about any other sake style. It's, it, it, it's clearly captured、uh, the mind share of a lot of our listeners. So I'm really excited to explore this. And I'm very excited that you're both here、uh, to do it with me. So it's going to be an adventure, it's going to be a fun journey. <laughs> And、well, Rebecca, how are you doing today? I'm good. Well, looking forward to having my、uh, first kampai, perhaps a sparkling sake, next time we are able to actually meet in person. I am also well and enjoying the warm weather that we are now experiencing here in Tokyo. And I'm also, like Justin, really excited about pursuing this, this topic.、Uh, sparkling sake is a, a genre of sake which has got so much potential. and Something that I've been following very closely for many years now,、uh, particularly with Craft Sake Week, which、uh, we used to run before the pandemic each year,、uh, where our first,、uh, the first day of event was always sparkling sake、um, because there, was, there is so much potential for this category. And we're wanting to create more awareness of、um, this fabulous、um, style of sake.、Um, and each year we were seeing it improve, makers pushing you know, the limits. and Um, I'm really excited about the further growth of this incredible genre of sake. I couldn't agree more.、Um, yeah, I have to be honest, like I wasn't really、uh, a fan of it to begin with, but it's growing on me. And what I'd like to do actually in this episode、um, so, yes, the, the topic of this episode is sparkling sake.、Um, and what we would love, what we really, what I'd like us to do in this episode is really just kind of showcase. The diversity that's on offer in this genre that I think some people maybe don't realize it is there. They maybe just think of sparkling sake as being something with gas in and then that's it. But there are a lot of different styles out there. There's a lot of different techniques being used to make sparkling sake. And I've also discovered by actually interviewing some brewers for this episode that、uh, actually sparkling sake may actually be able to create its own genre, its own global genre that sets itself apart from other. Uh, sparkling alcoholic beverages.、Um, so, yeah, we'll lay out the different styles of sparkling sake that are available worldwide, break them down,
Uh, try not to go down too many rabbit holes. And uh, we'll discuss a little bit about how you enjoy sparkling sake, what type of different flavors and tastes and experiences are out there, um, et cetera, et cetera. So without further ado, um, I'd like to just run through um, a kind of a little introduction about sparkling sake, the what, why, and when of sparkling sake. So the thing is that generally, um, up until about 20 years ago, uh, sparkling sake in Japan basically meant uh, alcohol with gas added into it. They, they injected carbonated gas into an already completed product, uh, which, is, which is how sparkling beverages are made elsewhere in the world. There's nothing kind of unique or unusual about that. And it's, it's all well and good, you know. But about 20 years ago, um, so there's a bit of a, they, this is a bit of a kind of, a, there'll be a, there's an argument over, over the validity of this, but, but it's generally accepted that a brewery called um, Ichinokura uh, in Miyagi Prefecture created the first uh, sparkling sake, which is made with natural gas. So let's kind of, just to simplify it, there's essentially two kind of divisions of sparkling sake. There's sparkling sake, which is made with carbonated gas that's injected into it. Um, and then there is a type of sake where the gas is created naturally as part of the fermentation or as part of an additional fermentation, what we call a second fermentation. And now there are a number of kind of subcategories inside that second category that I'd like to delve into. Um, if I kind of start off with the first one and then maybe you guys can kind of chime in um, but the first one um, is actually kind of something which is very inherent in the sake world because um, it, it kind of can happen accidentally as part of the, the sake production process as part of, you know, kind of like spring styles of sake, which tend to have a little bit of residual gas left over that dissolves into the liquid. And this is very similar to um, a kind of a pet nat or ancestral style um, in the wine world. Um, the, the reason just a minute ago I said that it's kind of very arguable that Ichinokuro is the first is because many sake breweries would have had a sake with some kind of residual gas left over. Um, it's just that they weren't really marketing that as a sparkling sake at the time. Um, so it's probably more correct to say that Ichinokuro is the first to market a sake as a sparkling sake in Japan. I'll just quickly go back because some of our listeners um, may not be aware of a term that was um, used slightly earlier, and yep. that was the term seishu. Now, seishu is um, the official technical term for what we are des describing as, as sake in this conversation, yep. and, and it means a, a, a refined sake. Um, just in case people were doing quick Google searches and trying to work out what that means during the podcast. So, and I'll, I'll move on to something that um, I think we might have um, skipped over, which is you were talking about uh, there are seasonal releases of sake. And yeah. um, so when they come out, especially during the, the, the first releases of the year that haven't had time to mature and very young and immature, um, you do come across these slightly um, petinile styles. And one of the um, things that is, also, not really, it's not described as sparkling sake and should not be called as a sparkling sake in any kind of term, but is of a style called Arabashiri, which is um, basically the first run 
from the filtration um, process, the first batch that naturally um, flows from the, um, the filter um, and is often um, the uh, is often bottled straight into the bottle rather than going into a tank and then immediately capped. And this pro this style of sake called arabashiri, um, this first run um, sake, is often got a slight pétillant quality in it. It should not be called sparkling sake, but before there was this genre and this term, there were people were drinking that style of sake for its slightly effervescent quality. Um, so that was actually my first introduction to a slightly pétillant style sake was arabashiri. And also those early spring um, sake, for example, uh, an usunigori. So nigori is a cloudy style sake, and usunigori is a is a lightly cloudy sake where they've um, they've filtered it with a slightly finer a mesh, so that it's not as thick and opaque. It's more of a um, slightly clear. It's got more transparency to it, and that style not always, but often has a slight, slight pétillant character. So before there was the genre, like back in 19, um, 2006, 2007, when I was drinking sake, um, that was what we were drinking for its slightly effervescent style. And it became very popular, um, especially among people that enjoy drinking sake. So I just wanted to throw that little bit of, little bit of um, history in there, personal yeah. history. Yeah, so, and that and that context is super important. Except before we move on to that, um, you know, that double fermentation that you talked about. You know, Chris, when you brought up seishu and then that idea of the kase, right? Kase and is exactly what right, Rebecca, what you were just talking about is this this natural process that is just happening inherently within the bottle. And so, I guess the 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 core thing that I, I want just people to understand is that the idea of having a sake with effervescence is a very it's it's a very natural thing. Like it's not, it's not conceptually, it's not out of this world on a very fundamental level, right? Being a fermented beverage, or the, you know, we're looking beer, we're looking at, you know, wines. Depending on how you um, treat or not treat those things, it's entirely reasonable to have um, something with a little bit of effervescence in it, and there's absolutely precedence for it. It just wasn't, as you mentioned, Chris, it wasn't called sparkling right. sake, it wasn't or it wasn't like that. Yeah. It's it's been around in in a certain capacity, yeah. you know, and it's and particularly I think in the last you've seen a lot more of it, like you said, in the last 20, 25 years or so, um, just because bottling techniques, um, more cold storage, more things that just made it easy to store sock store and handle and ship and sake and make sure to keep, you know, you're able to keep you're able to keep bottles from exploding and things of that nature through a number of, you know, uh, less than ideal, um, you know, experience. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, right. It's, through, it's through... been, it's been a lot, there's been a lot of trial and error. And like, as I discovered mm -hmm. by interviewing, you know, um, Ichinokura, mm -hmm. it, it's not easy. In, mm -hmm. in the case of sake, you know, um, it's really not easy to keep gas in the bottle in a stable way that is safe for the consumer, um, where you can deliver a stable and consistent product. And for the gas to act, you know, to deliver an, an experience to the consumer that they're going to enjoy. Um, and I think that's probably why they didn't market it as sparkling sake for a long time, um, because, you know, it just was there was no guarantee. I mean, you could market it as sparkling sake. And when the bottle reaches the consumer, maybe all the gas is already gone uh, from the bottle. 
Uh, the thing about Casse is there's no guarantee. You know, uh, if it's a Casse style, you'd expect to have some gas in there, but that's not always the case. So, so which then which then explains why uh, people are, uh, breweries initially would choose to to pump exactly. CO2 into it, because if you're exactly. looking to create a consistent product yeah. that is sparkling in nature, that's that's the way to do it without spending you know quite a, all, all all the time and and quite as much research into you know all. All, all the nuance um, of not just making, but then bottling and maturing and all the other and all the other um, things that come into play. So, yeah. you know, um, that's a, it was a very viable method for, you know, delivering a pleasurable, often tasty experience to a lot of people uh, at a reasonable price. Yeah, go ahead, Rebecca. Um, there was also something, I'd, um, just a personal anecdote I'd like to share about Kase, which was, was spoken mm. about before. So, you know, this was 15 years ago, I suppose. Um, one of the big things that people would love to do, a cele celebratory thing people would do at like kind of psychomaniac bars was when the first kase was released from some breweries, they would, you know, have a big um, nomikai drinking party and the, the kase bottle would be brought up because to open one of those babies is such a performance um, because it is so highly volatile. Um, opening it is not only a skill, but also requires some safety equipment <laughs> in some cases. And so it's kind of a big performance and everyone oohs and ahs and, you know, takes photos. And um, as this, the cap is gingerly um, removed from the bottle and usually there's an explosion of some sort. And that's actually one of the points I wanted to make is that for breweries, that particular style does have a surgeon um, comes at high risk because during production, um, during uh, logistics, during transportation of your product and at the, the restaurant or the sake store itself, those the sake is so unstable that it is prone to exploding. So there's a high cost um, for the brewer in terms of waste, yeah. as well as for yeah. the um, the consumer, there's a high um, chance of waste. And uh, an example of that happened to me recently. Adamasa does a um, well, it's not a kase; it's a very very volatile sparkling sake called Amagairu. And I opened it, forgetting what kind of sake it was, Ooh. and I just had a shower of sake. <laughs> like the the cap went up and hit it it, it, it broke my um the bulb in my light bulb which is directly above me and I just had this shower of sake on top of me and there was about only a quarter of it left in the bottle so yeah. <laughs> imagine a, imagine a jumping frog there <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah, yeah if, we're, if we're running I, I remember I did an event a little while back and I brought it wasn't a bottle of sparkling sake but it was a I guess called a kase nigori so it was something that was, yes. it was really chunky and all of the stuff in it and I brought a lineup of sake um to use uh, this event and we were heating and warming some sake as well too. So when we brought the sake out, everything went out on the counter and there was the, you know, the hot water bath there warming sake and, you know, opened everything up and tasted it and checked it. And the person who was helping out just left it sitting there next to the, the bath where there was heat coming from. So it was warming up and so it was just sitting open and it was so volatile that just in the change of temperature of going from being in the fridge to sitting next to this warm bath uh, for a couple of minutes, all of a sudden it just started <laughs> so we're blowing yeah, right out of the bottle all over the counter. So it's, as I said, it's volatile stuff, you know, and it's, yeah. and it's, un, and it's unpredictable. Right. And so when we're getting into, you know, once we start getting into the, 
um, secondary fermentation and bottle and the awazaki and stuff that we're going to talk about, a, a big goal in creating those is creating, how do you create a consistent, high quality product, right? Whereas these are, they're a lot of fun. If you get them at the right time in the right place, I, some of the best sake I've ever had in my life has been a kase or, or a kase nigori. They can just be absolutely incredible. And they're so, and they're, and they're such unique experiences to the sake category as a whole. They're just really, really special. But if if consistency is your, in in safety is your game, it's a it's a it's a challenge. So. Yeah. So what we've been basically saying is I've been describing like there was the style that was very vaguely pedillon. So we yeah. call it pucci pucci, like yeah. a, a slight effervescence, a slight trapped CO two quality, but it was not sparkling. Yeah. And then we kind of had what we used to have before the genre really became quite pronounced and well defined was that style, and then the super explosive Mount Vesuvius of um, sparkling styles. So there really was a clear need for the genre to. Mm to emerge, mm. I think. Yeah. So um, Justin and I have taken us down a massive um, <laughs> yeah, side no, but, so, so Chris, I'm going to to you to get us back on okay. the track. <laughs> okay. So we, we've kind of, we've kind of go over Seishu and you touched on, right? Yeah. So the point, the point, the reason you want to explode it, Seishu, which is sake that we're talking about is like you said, the, the kinds of ingredients that can be used to produce it. And then what can be used after it's, you know, after that thing's been pressed, you know, the yeah. the limitations upon what can go back into that it's very very strict on what the definition of sake is um then we sort of touched on products that have had co2 added and then this like you say the pitna sort of for lack of a better word style or this more simple um kase style um fermentations um and from there then we get into these secondary fermentations in bottle which is what you see a lot of breweries touting um these days um and so yeah if you want to sure. start, start us off down that road sure sure yeah well um so i interviewed uh ichinokura um because you know like i said they're kind of generally recognized as being the first brewery to kind of at least market um this kind of uh secondary uh fermentation style um and they did actually uh or rather the current ceo's father did actually research champagne because, you know, when you think of sparkling wine, for example, um, you, you generally, I think you think of champagne, but they actually realized that, you know, champagne is just too complicated and you just can't, you know, pour champagne over into the sake world and make a sake like a champagne. It just doesn't work like that. Um, and so they actually started off the kind of first kind of um, secondary fermentation sake was uh, made a little bit simpler. But let, let me explain. So, okay, what we're talking about when we're talking about secondary fermentation. So in, in a very kind of simple sense, you, you stop the fermentation. The, the fermentation in the tank hasn't quite um, gone all the way to the end. The yeast hasn't consumed all the sugar. So there will be some uh, sugar left over in the tank, and that's key. Um, and then you will, uh, normally you will filter the sake. But again, you might not actually filter the sake completely so that there are some sort of bits of um, koji and rice and yeast and things inside the bottle. Uh, again, this is key. So then what will happen is you will uh, put a cap on the bottle. And what will happen is because you still have yeast and you still have sugar, food for the yeast, and you still have some koji inside the bottle, what will happen is a second fermentation will naturally occur inside the bottle. And of course, when you have a fermentation, you have gas. Gas is created by uh, through the fermentation. And we're talking mainly about carbon dioxide. So carbonated gas will be created inside the bottle naturally. And that is what a secondary 
fermentation uh, is. Now, it doesn't happen have to happen in the bottle. There is a, another version where you basically create the second fermentation inside the tank. Um, in the wine world, this is called the Sharma um, style of making uh, sparkling wine. Uh, so actually, Ichinokura's first um, sparkling sake made in the secondary fermentation style was actually a Sharma uh, or tank secondary fermentation. Um, so the challenge here is that when we were talking about seishu earlier, we explained that you're not allowed to add any um, like sugar or extra ingredients after you filter the sake. Now that presents a bit of a challenge when you're trying to make sparkling sake in the secondary fermentation style, because you don't really have enough food for the yeast to start this second fermentation. Um, so this is what a lot of brewers, this is the first hurdle that a, brewer, a lot of brewers have to get around. How do they ferment the sake so that it has enough kind of um, fuel left over for the yeast to start this second fermentation. They are allowed to add things which are created in the sake production process. So the, for example, they could add uh, a maromi or the, the parts of the mash from another tank into the bottle to kind of start the uh, second fermentation. But most breweries will probably just filter the sake coarsely so that some of the solids go through into the bottle and then that, that means that there is some yeast and koji and, and sugar etc left over in the bottle and that will start the second fermentation. So then we have the, the second, uh, the evolution I would call it, um, which is eventually the, the sake world did get to the champagne method, um, which is very similar to the, um, the kind of other method of secondary fermentation, which I talked about, but it's much more complicated. Um, there's a lot of blending and aging involved uh, when it comes to making champagne. The, the grapes they use to make champagne alone are kind of, you know, they're quite, you have to be quite particular about that. But the, the biggest kind of problem with trying to make it like a champagne is that a lot of the things that you do in champagne, you can't do when you make sake. So for example, the, often when you make champagne, you will add acidifiers and you will add sweetness to adjust the sugar and acidity level um, in the sake. And you're not allowed to do that um, in, in the world in, of sake. In, a, in the wine, you mean? You'll add those? And you'll add those in the wine, yeah. But you can't do that when you're making sake. So the biggest challenge that you have, and one of the reasons why you, it's very difficult to make um, a sake in, in the style of a champagne, is that it's very difficult to achieve that kind of acidity and sugar balance. Uh, the first brewery to achieve this um, was a brewery called Nagai Shuzo in uh, Gunma Prefecture. And uh, they actually then set up an organization um, called the Awa Sake Kyokai, or literally, I suppose you would translate it as the Bubbly Sake Association. There are different... In, in English, it's the Japan Awa Sake Association. But they, they don't actually translate it, do they? They just kind of use it as is. Um, there are now, I think there are about uh, 25 members um, and all of the members in this association, they have to follow quite strict guidelines when they make their sake. Um, the regulations are as follows. Um, they must make the sake with only domestic rice, water and koji. They're not allowed to add alcohol. So that means that you can't make a honjozo uh, and then make a kind of champagne style honjozo. Uh, there must be a minimum of 3.5 bars of pressure uh, at 20 degrees. Um, natural gas must be created from a secondary in bottle or 
tank fermentation, you are allowed to do both. The shipping of the sparkling sake must be very sustainable. So uh, you must be able to ship the product and it arrive at its end destination with the desired kind of um, gas level, gas pressure level, uh, the desired kind of mousse, uh, which is the mouthfeel. Um, and also you don't want exploding bottles as well. Um, so that's, that's very strict. And there's a minimum of 10% alcohol, um, which you, uh, so you can't do like a 9% um, sparkling sake for the Awasaki Kyokai. And it must be clear in appearance. So no nigori sake is allowed. And one point about the Awasaki um, Association is that despite all the members, well, I'm not sure if all of those members are actually producing um, Asake for many years when that association first opened um, you'd go along to all the events and all the brewers would be there but not all of them would have sake because many of them were in the prototype stage for many years. Kokuryu was a really good example of that. They were on the association's website for I think three years before they put out a, a sake of their own which came out um, I believe was it last year? Yes, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, uh, so they were on on the website, but they weren't actually producing it because they were um, they were refining their their technique. So it is a very which tells you that's a very 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 difficult um, yeah. process to um, to follow to be able to follow those guidelines and produce a delicious sake at the end of it is very difficult. Yeah, I mean, both Nagai Shuzo and, uh, and uh, Yamanashi Meijo, which is another brewery which I interviewed, um, one of the more recent members of the association uh, who make the brand Shichiken, uh, both of those, uh, and I think Shichiken actually learned to an extent from Nagai Shuzo, and I think that they'd be happy admitting that. Um, but Nagai Shuzo and, and both, both breweries said that they went through about 500 um, bottles uh, to get where they are, 500 bottles exploding because they didn't quite get the balance right and the pressure got too high and the bottle couldn't, couldn't take it. Um, and, and actually, Ichinokura had to, to work with bottle cap manufacturers uh, and bottle manufacturers to create um, a bottle cap which could withstand the pasteurization which is required. Um, because when you actually pasteurize the sake, you're heating it up, right? So when you've got gas inside the bottle, you know, you, you, you've essentially got a bomb waiting to go off. Um, so, you know, it wasn't easy. It, it's not easy to create this style. So that kind of maybe adds to the appreciation for breweries that produce sake in this way. So one of the sort of leading on to talking about sparkling styles was... Yeah. One thing I'd like to, again, just for historical context, well, it's not really historical, it's only the last 10 years, really, um, was we've, we've spoken about, like, Petillon styles and very explosive styles, and then, for example, Ichinokura coming out with and their, their sparkling style, um, and that being well-received. This was all part of something that was sort of happening in the, um, the late noughts and really picked up steam because the media picked up the story, I'd say around 2011, 2012, um, was this drive towards remarketing sake. So up until then, sake, you know, I know personally, because when I went to an Izakaya in 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, I was most definitely the only foreigner. I was definitely the only female. 
I was definitely the only person under 60 and I was possibly the only person that had my own teeth. So you can get an understanding of what the sake market was like in those days. And that was not sustainable. That's not a sustainable market because that market is obviously aging and it's aging itself. Um, the, the, The sake industry needed to shift the demographic that it was targeting its, its sake towards to be able to have a sustainable future. And yeah. so there was a lot of, I think the big story was that decide, deciding to um, rebrand with their only Jumai Daiganjo production. And Asai also picked up on this trend of sparkling, which would have been started by you know, breweries like Ichinokura. They put out an usunigogi in a champagne bottle. It, well, it looks like a champagne bottle. It's got a, it's got a cage stopper. It looks like champagne, and it was marketed to to be enjoyed in, the, in a flute glass, and that was all be part of this sh- attempt to engage a thirty a, a thirty to fifty year old female market, yeah. because women in Japan are usually the trendsetters, and they're usually the ones that will start. Um, will we'll be able to get the story of a trend out to the wider community. So I think that Ichinokura sort of lit, uh, lit a, uh, the, the fuse that yes. was um, then raced along and was picked up by other breweries. And then when a brewery like Desai, which at that time at the end of the naughty was, was like so huge in Japan. I mean, it was such a big name and it had so much buzz around it. When that picked up the, the style and was marketing it in the champagne looking bottle, even though it wasn't made with the um, the champagne method um, technique, um, it was it it really did um, catch on so much in the market. And then the media picked up on the story, and then it just became huge. So we started to have more media exposure. Um, it was um, the sparkling style started to appear in fashion magazines in gourmet magazines and it started to get this image of a more oshare or fashionable way to drink sake for a new generation so behind all of this technique developing there's also this social history going on in the background as well and possibly even pulling the genre forward because the market was positively responding to something but there wasn't enough of it and more breweries could see that there was a potential to um um, shift their production towards a style that was going to engage with a new market. Definitely. And actually, Ichinokura uh, did actually, when they were developing their own sake, they, they created a patent and they actually, essentially, they they sold this patent or they gave this patent to other breweries. And I believe they there, there's going to be an interview which our, our listeners can listen to and they can listen to the whole interview and they can, they can you know, um, hear it from Ichinokura themselves. But yeah, uh, Ichinokura did work with a lot of breweries in the early days to create their sparkling sake. And they themselves were, like you said, Rebecca, they were targeting the female audience with their with their first products, Suzune and Himizen. They were they were targeting the the female audience, the, the, the female drinkers who prefer to drink beer or maybe those female drinkers who don't like drinking beer they don't like bitter things they prefer something a bit sweet and light and casual and that kind of really spoke to to that audience so it was definitely a marketing drive without a doubt sure so it's in back to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation is where does this slot into the to, to the experience and for whom right yes. um and so yeah. that's where what a lot of producers have said in the last even just 10 years or so of, of really 
place their bets on an effervescent style sake. Um, yeah. That it yeah. is that it will be the the gateway drug, I guess, for lack of a better word, to um, to other drinkers or more casual drinkers that exactly um, enjoy other things and that, that can slot into not just that initial. It won't just be that initial start your beverage or sorry start your meal off with the sparkling sake, but it feels at home in different types of dining establishments, in different types of um, together with different types of cuisine, in different types of settings, um, and then all of a sudden, like Rebecca, like you said, then all of a sudden, once you start fitting in those places, then all of a sudden it starts arrive. You start seeing sake in in magazines and on TV shows and in different sorts of placements where it never had um, placement before. I mean, over the last 15 years, I think probably the most common comment that I've heard from people who have been turned on to sake, people who said, I didn't really like sake until, um, and I went, well, there's a famous brand called Mio, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. is um, available in most supermarkets, convenience stores, and, you know, girlfriends, guy friends. Um, would say, yeah, I didn't really like sake. I had this kind of image of an old man drink, um, wasn't really into it. Then I drank that Mio, that was great. And so many people have actually said that that was a sake that got them into re-looking at sake and saying, oh, hang on, this was really fruity and aromatic and lovely and light. Oh, I could drink this again. I'll try another sake. So it actually got them onto the bridge of exploring more sake. And you know, Ichinokura definitely was um, the out in front in terms of you know there may have been other people who were producing a sparkling style of sake before them, but they effectively marketed it and they effectively, most importantly, got it into the hands of consumers. And and the sweetness in in sparkling sake is very much derived from the rice. You get a lovely kind of you know ricey sweetness. Uh, you know it's not like added sugar or you know artificial sugar or other types of glucose. Um, so that's also very pleasant as well, I think. And uh, dare I say it, healthier? I don't know about that. This might be a claim we can't make. Um, uh, so, I mean, one of the main reasons was marketing, as we've established. Uh, another kind of reason that Sparkling Sake has kind of become more popular recently is that they, they well, this is also marketing, but they were trying to, um, we, we had the Olympics, right? Um, and, you know, a, a lot of the the kind of the Sparkling Sake drive was definitely as far as the, the Awazaki Kyokai is concerned, was creating something that people could toast with or celebrate with during the Olympics. And also um, another kind of great, uh, re, you know, and, and a great benefit of uh, sparkling sake is that in the summer, people tend to drink more beer than sake, right? Because uh, it's more refreshing. Um, you know, sake kind of makes you a little bit kind of tired. Maybe in the summer, it's not it's not a great kind of thing to drink when you're feeling a little bit like you know lost for energy. Um, so, sparkling sake provides something for some people to to drink in the summer. That's another great uh, benefit yeah, of it. Absolutely, sparkling sake kind of runs the gamut stylistically as far as what that experience can be like uh the, mm. the sensory experience of actually you know consuming or enjoying a, a sparkling or effervescent style sake and which raises the question is you know what is a quality sparkling sake and it's a hard question to answer very difficult. Um, because uh, across the board, board they're they're generally pleasant I mean, that's that's one of one of its most salient features that they're just generally pleasant all across the board. Um, you know, no matter what your example, like judging um, yeah. 
Sake, um, at Adobe Safe, for example, mm-hmm. um, it is a genre which is quite difficult to judge yeah. because I think some people's perception of what sake, uh, of what a good sparkling sake is, can slightly vary. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you're thinking from a technical point of view or whether you're thinking from a consumer point of view, yeah. um, it can vary as well. And Drastically. is, of course, we judge with technical, you know, things need to be technically well um, produced, mm-hmm. um, but also we are judging on the side of the consumer in a way sort of judging as an advocate for the consumer, choosing a sake that they will enjoy drinking. Mm-hmm. So I think that what is a great sake is sometimes somewhere in the middle, Absolutely. something that's technically well made and something that is in terms of a, the consumer appreciation is well enjoyed. Absolutely. And, so, and, and even just in our conversation today, a lot of the stuff we've talked about up till now, we've been talking about the last 10 to 15 years. And then we touched upon, Rebecca, you mentioned that, um, for example, Kokudu's product was in development or there, I was like for a number of years. And that's the story generally across the board for just about all of these producers is that they spent three or four years, you know, figuring out what this should be before even bringing it to market. And then after it came to market, they were still refining it. There's a lot of sparkling style sakes that have become really iconic for the style that the the product is far more exceptional now than it was two or three years ago absolutely um, you know um, it's just really because you justin yeah. just full disclosure um yeah. is one of the one of our team used to be one of our teamsters at craft sake I, I i i was i was hiding behind this behind the behind the well actually you were, you were locked in a, in a minus five degree store <laughs> most of the time um <laughs> So every year we would, before we would select the sake, sparkling sake day lineup of 10 breweries, we would taste what was available on the market. And so we'd try everything that was being produced and available on the market each year. And, you know, I remember 2017 when we first did sparkling sake day. Yeah, we, we, we were struggling a bit to get that top 10. And then the last time we did it, it was, you know, we, it was just like, no, I don't want to cut this person. We've only got one more space. The, you know, the quality, number one, the quality and the consistency of just in the last 10 years has been mind-blowing. So it, as I say, at the, I said at the start of this conversation, this is a genre with a huge amount of potential because we're not there yet. We are still in early days. Sake has been produced in some form for about 2,000 years, they say, and we're, we're talking about last two decades. So this is a really exciting genre. Absolutely. You know, and we're talking about, say, for example, the Japan Awasake Association, you know, there's a, a there's a lot of argument as to whether or not, say, for example, the standards that they set for what that should be like are, are uh, for lack of a better word, I- ideal for sake. Is this the best representative of what this should look like for sake? That conversation aside, the reason that they did it and had to do it is because they had to work on common ground, right? The biggest goal, I think, for that association, and this is just my, from the outside, this isn't, you know, opinion from them is, the goal is to rate was to raise the bar for what that experience is like, right? Um, and so, no, if, pun, no pun intended. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and so, if it's if ev- if everybody's definition of that and what they're working from is is all across the board, it's really really hard to do that. Um, and just with the style being as young as it is, at least as young as it is in the form that we're that we're talking about, in the nature that we're talking about, like, to have very clear standards that everybody has to work around is makes it much, much easier to 
um, to educate and mutually support and really raise that bar, that technical bar, um, and, and as a result, raise quality. You know, and of course, that's very different from what we're talking about. So like the casse is all over the board, and arguably, that's a really, really special. Like I said, like we said earlier, it's all over the board. You can you can have you know uh, a small explosive in your hand, or you can have uh, who's I was talking to a producer the other day that you know they they've been having now. A, occasionally they have people return bottles because they actually don't explode enough. Like they have these big warning labels on yeah, them, big no, red. I was saying, you, you know? I have come across more duds in the yeah. say, uh, sake category than I have explosions. Yeah. I'm disappointed on a regular <laughs> basis. I go to a party, yeah. you know, thinking I'm going to impress people with this bomb, this firework, and it's just a dud. Yeah. It doesn't go I off. Say, it's like, it's, 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 you know, and that's the result of a couple of decades of, of very yeah, of traumatizing experience from the brewer's perspective of having, you know, a lot of real, having products sent back and complaints and all these things, whereas now they're almost overcompensated to where it, it almost looks like you're pur- purchasing like an illegal firearm or explosive, like by the, yeah. the way this bottle is wrapped. And, and, and then when it doesn't do they, anything, the, the buyer goes, what, yeah. you know, but. It, and they, they, they arrived at these regulations um, you know, well, Nagai Shuzo arrived at these regulations just basically through number one trial and error, but also through a lot of study and research. Um, you know, he actually spent the the CEO of Nagai Shuzo actually spent time um kind of doing like studying and learning how to make champagne. And you know, kind of it, the regulations that they've arrived at are, I would agree with you. I, I don't think they're necessarily perfect for the the for sake. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of the regulations that they've arrived at that make it possible to make a consistent style of sparkling sake, kind of in that champagne style, which they see as the gold standard for sparkling mm-hmm. sake, right? Uh, the global gold standard. And whether that's correct or not, that's a different yeah. question. But that's where they've arrived. That, yeah, that's I where think kind it's of the important to note that our, uh, our sake is not sparkling sake. Yeah. It is no. the entire genre. It is, it is what it is. It's an association. Right. And yes. and that's why they coined yes. the term awazake. Yeah. It's to it's to resent. Exactly. One of the things that I'm really, you know, one of the things that I is great about, you know, there are many great things about awazake. Um, you know, I think mm. it's a fabulous organization. It's doing great things because in terms of the way it is, it not only collectively, like actually, I have the understanding that there is a lot of internal support amongst mm. breweries. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing sharing knowledge um technology and experience is is vital for everyone to improve the other thing is on the periphery you have other breweries watching this and tasting this sake and i think that does create um a little bit of competition as well um one of the things that was always was kind of disappointing i remember when sparkling was sort of becoming a bit of a trending term and like the like and 2011-2012 was a lot of sake was being um, marketed with this buzzword sparkling, but you'd open it and it would be pedal on it first, and then within you'd have a couple of sips. By the end of the glass, it was flat, yeah. and it was like what? And I think that that uh, what the Awazake Association is doing in terms of um, the consistency of the bubble, making sure that there's a good perlage, that is sustainable. So that's one thing about sparkling sake, which is very difficult to achieve, sustainable perlage or that, mm-hmm. that beading for that the bubbles yep. to continue and to be in a constant thread is very, very difficult. And you would get sake that was called sparkling that wouldn't even create a, a one single 
bead, mm. you know? So mm. I think that what the Aozake Association is doing is pushing the, 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 the limits and other breweries are seeing that and learning from their example and improving their game. Yeah, and, and even those that aren't making quote unquote Aozake, they're, those producers are seeing those examples and think, okay, this, you know, this is possible. What does this look like in a, in a different interpretation? What is that, you know, is there a way that we can create a similar experience without necessarily going through those type press? You know, it's just having those other, having high quality examples of the very different styles across the board is just raising the bar. And basically what, yeah, so I was like, it did, it just made a very clear definition for, for people to work from and for people and, to, and, and it's it the really first... helps with that rapid innovation of, of that style. Right. And it's the first kind of like it's the it's the first sort of sparkling sake which achieves that high pressure. Um, so you know that that was the thing really. Like they all spoke about that. Uh, both both breweries I interviewed and I've heard it from other breweries as well. This was the biggest challenge. You know, getting that pressure up without the bottle exploding. Yeah. Actually, being able to deliver something which has that pressure contained within it, just because of the inherent complicated microbial makeup of of sake it just seemed like an impossible task. And a lot of them were ready to give up. A lot of these breweries were ready to give up, um, but they saw it through because of their tenacity. One, one thing I do want to add, which comes up in the brewer interviews, which I think is where the potential of sparkling sake really lies, is in the aging. Because um, both Ichinokura and Shichiken uh, kind of you know said that really, there's an aging there. There's a possibility of aging there you can't do with champagne, or it takes too long to do with champagne. It's much quicker with sake, but you're left with more elements in the sake that kind of lend well to aging, that transform well when you age the sake. You don't have that with sparkling sake. So there's a real potential there. And secretly, you know, when these brewers get, get, get together and have a drink and they sort of chat amongst one another, apparently there is a conversation going around that, you know, they all kind of hope, they're all kind of, you know, aspiring for sparkling sake to kind of become this, this bigger thing in, in the, on the global scale in the future. Um, and that it's definitely nowhere near reached its potential yet. Sure. And I guess the, the nowhere yeah, near. Said, and the, the key word I think is, right. And this is what, you know, we've seen, like we said, with the, with the depth and breadth of product styles and the amount of technical innovation and support from within the industry um, over the last number of years is that, you know, we're calling it sparkling sake, you know, how close can we get to what a, what, it, when we're creating a sparkling sake, um, you know, what is that? What does that mean? You know, and everybody's still in, in pursuit of that, you know, um, there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful examples of that now. Um, but the, you know, the, the jury is still out on to exactly what a sparkling sake um, is mm -hmm. and so it'll be really really exciting to see yeah honest, even just in the next five years I think we're going to see a lot of really 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 interesting exciting stuff and it's it's only going to get um, better across the board so and I agree with Chris we we because collectively you know speaking on a personal level um, as sake on ear but also we as in the audience people who are sake educators the onus is on us to be able to um, educate our markets um, about the diversity of the product um, so that people um, are not are, know what to expect and 
are not expecting their sparkling sake to drink like a champagne because I have heard some people drinking an usunigori, which is marketed as a sparkling, and said, oh, it wasn't bubbly enough. Well, this maker didn't, wasn't trying to create a champagne-like effect. So for educators, it's important for us to explain the diversity of the styles so that consumers can make an informed decision. And when they order something, they are in, they're in the ballpark of what they thought they were getting. Um, which will make them have a much more um, satisfying and enjoyable experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is this is key when you have so many price points now going all over, you know, floating about. Like the consumer very quickly will lose like a sense of what the value of sparkling sake is. And we need to kind of communicate that. Yeah, that's that's um, a that's a the big elephant in the room or the big question for the entire yep. sake industry as well, too. So um, yeah, but you have a unique a good... opportunity with sparkling mm-hmm. sake because you don't have any of those, you don't have any of those expectations or those kind of, um, you know, social stereotypes. You don't have to worry about this. The completely different genre. It's a completely new genre to an extent within the sparkling industry. You have a new platform to build upon. And I think the world is your oyster um, in that respect. Cool. Speaking of oysters. Sparkling sake, oysters. oysters. Everybody, who's down? Who's down? I wish I could. I wish I could eat them. I, I can't. I can't stand the things. But I do understand. I had a little sip of like the juice once, and I, if that's the flavor you get from them, I understand exactly why sparkling sake is so, you know, good with them. Well, um, we'll, we'll we'll get you there one day, brother. We'll... Oh no. <laughs> cool. I think that's well, a, I think that's a good spot yeah. to 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 wrap it Thanks up here. To, um, yeah. yeah. Thank you. We, our, yeah. our bubbles are running well, out. Yeah. No, we'll have um, to. Yeah. I, I don't have it. I don't have a good pun lined up. Um, well, uh, <laughs> Chris, Rebecca, thank you so much for putting the time into this. Thank I'm you. really looking forward to the other interviews that you put together. You picked a couple of fantastic representatives for the, for the styles and for the category. So I'm really, really excited. I hope our listeners will um, tune in for those uh, as well. Uh, for any of our listeners who do have questions, questions at sakeonair.com. You can follow along at sakeonair, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, we're on YouTube as well, where we have uh, a lot of old episodes up as well as all the stuff from the Sake Future Summit last year. And if you have a moment, please do pop over to Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you enjoy your podcast regularly. And if you could be so kind as to give us a rating and a short comment, that does more to help spread the word about the show than just about anything you could do actually. And helping spread the word about the show is spreading the word about sake as far as I'm concerned. So um, that's that's the bigger one for everybody. So um, for those who you know appreciate the show, um, this week's show or you know what we're trying to do here, um, if you can take two or three minutes and do that, that would be, greatly greatly appreciated um great chris rebecca thank you thank you thank you it was great fun and as i said i'm looking forward to having that kampai with the sparkling sake with you all one day soon we're gonna get there we're gonna get there right we're getting close to the finish line fingers crossed fingers crossed all right excellent you two have a brilliant evening and weekend and we'll see you here very soon. Bye.